This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 16th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the past couple of weeks, we've talked quite a bit about the development of possible vaccines and the work recently of Operation Warp Speed. Today, let's look at other areas where potential interventions are being developed. Operation Warp Speed, we learn in an article we published this week, is looking beyond vaccines. What's happening? So, Steve, some of the leaders of Operation Warp Speed wrote about a second focus of the program in therapeutics. Therapeutics are, in a way, more complicated than vaccines. There are a limited number of approaches to vaccination and a similarly limited number of endpoints. But for therapeutics, there is an enormously wide range of targets and goals for new therapies. They can be prophylactic, or they can prevent disease and target the virus, or they can target the host. They can target the interface between the host and the virus. And all of these can have different consequences. And the molecular entities can be small synthetic molecules, or they could be large biological macromolecules. So the development paths are very different for all of these things, in particular for small molecules. The development time from discovery all the way to a useful drug is even longer than in vaccines. It's often extending for decades. So given all of this, the operation set three criteria for which candidates to support. And one may take issue with any of these, but they are what they are. First, the candidate has to be ready for clinical testing this fall because they're very interested in getting this thing out there during the current outbreak. This is a substantial challenge and it really limits us to molecules that are either already into clinical testing or are in very late preclinical stages. Second, although the candidate can come from a wide range of sources, there has to be very strong preclinical data supporting its use. And finally, any candidate that's chosen must be deliverable at scale by the end of this year. So these criteria really do strictly limit the potential candidates, and it means that there aren't an infinite number to choose from. It means that one of the leaders in this are antibody-based therapies. Uh, they have several advantages. First, we know that antisera are protective in other infectious diseases, and sometimes they're therapeutic in other infectious diseases. And making antibodies, whether they're polyclonal or monoclonal, is a really well-worked-out process. We understand how to produce them, to develop them, and to actually make the product at the end. Finally, we have a good idea of the safety margins in general for antibody-based products, though there, of course, can always be issues with a new specificity antibody or antiserum. But in general, we have an idea of what to look for. Thus, it's not a big surprise that much of the portfolio that the authors discuss are made up of antibody-based agents. So I can see the appeal of antibodies, but the two therapies that have been successful to date have both been small molecules. The antiviral remdesivir, which appears to primarily benefit people earlier in infection, and dexamethasone, which decreases the rate of death in people with more severe disease. So why aren't small molecule drugs part of this investigation? Well, there are some. But again, it has to be pretty limited. They're largely repurposed drugs that are already on the market for other diseases or candidate compounds that either have already had early phase testing or are really poised to go into people rapidly. It's just a timeline problem. 
Every small molecule has unique properties, and it's very difficult to generalize from one to another, sometimes even within the same chemical class. So every drug has its own pharmacology, which has to be investigated. Everyone has to be formulated individually. Then each compound has to undergo safety testing. And oftentimes, it's very difficult to guess what the issues are going to be for a small molecule, as opposed to some of the, for example, antibodies that we've looked at. And so there are often not very good guesses about potential toxicities before you get into people. So using the ground rules set by Operation Warp Speed, very few compounds can make the cut. Eric, I mean, I think you've framed very well some of the challenges in this space. And as you know, I'm involved with Operation Warp Speed. And I think that part of the key forces that have to be looked at carefully is when we bring the US government, industry, academia together, how do we do that in response to a pandemic, a global and national crisis? And how do we bring the best out of each of these critical structures in our society? And it's a real balance because we don't want to get lost in for-profit considerations, but we also need responses that are temporally appropriate. So speed and how to do things quickly in response to this pandemic that is spreading so fast. It's something that the different communities haven't always thought about together that this crisis has forced us to. And I think there have been frustrations when you bring different cultures together, but I think there are incredible synergies. And I think the speed with which this response is occurring on the biomedical side is encouraging in many ways, despite some failings in our response. And I do think that what Monsef raises and what's raised in the piece, as you pointed out, is thinking about some of the production issues. And often we think about how do we solve the problem from a biology standpoint in academia, which is critically important. You can't solve the problem if you don't understand the biology, but you actually have to think about how do you go to scale and how do you go to scale in a temporally sensitive manner? Because if we solve a problem, but it takes five years to have something in the clinic for broad use, that will be less helpful in the current pandemic. It's very challenging when you bring different communities together, but I do think that one can have a response that is very good and inspirational in some ways. And so I think these tenants have choices baked into them, but it's worth some reflection as a community as to the value proposition of utilizing things that can be utilized quickly and developing those countermeasures that have the ability to go to scale, which means we've thought about the manufacturing, we've thought about the delivery, we've thought about how it may be used in the clinic. And so it's an interesting construct, Operation Warp Speed, and what goes into it and the debate it's created. I think you're right, Lindsay, it is an experiment, at least in the biomedical side. I will say that the federal government has many relationships in R&D with private companies outside of the NIH and even within the NIH, but generally within the NIH, that means providing funding in a way that just allows companies to discover or develop new therapies through granting programs and such. This is quite different and perhaps it's more analogous to things like NASA when it funds development of new rockets and new devices where the government is really partnering and taking ownership to some extent of what happens. 
Operation Warp Speed is kind of an in-between where the government is deeply involved in the research in some cases, for example, in the trials that you're involved in of vaccines, where the government's taking a very active role, but they're also funders where they're providing money to the companies to do this without actually owning the products. It's a very different model from some of the other federal contracting. And I think that's a very important point that you raise, but we have to think through the implications. If compound X is successful, be it a vaccine, be it a small molecule, a therapeutic, if we want to deliver it to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, because I would argue we need to think about this not just in our local community or across the U.S., it is a global problem. And the more that we can stop the transmission and the morbidity from SARS-CoV-2 anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world benefits. And so there is a scalability issue. And people question or want to understand how can things be done so quickly. There are ways to take risks in manufacturing that are financial that don't engender safety risks in the studies. And those financial risks have to be thought about in the manufacturing side and the delivery side that I would argue are appropriate risks in this setting because with 50,000 new infections per day, 1,000 deaths per day in this country, shaving off a month, a week, or a day has significant potential implications. But those are debates that are going on across the country in our different government sectors. And that's part of what is behind OWS in its mandate to do this quickly. So is there much activity in therapeutic development outside Operation Warp Speed? Oh, there's a lot. Remember that this program is very U.S.-centric for all the advantages and disadvantages that that offers. And there are a lot of other international efforts. And even in the U.S., a very small number of potential therapeutics make the criteria for the reasons that we were talking about before. So, for example, there are dozens, if not more, antibody candidates out there. And there are somewhat more limited number of antivirals that are at the stage of entering clinical trials or somewhere close. But there's plenty of preclinical activity going on. That won't pay off for a very long time. It won't pay off during the current outbreak, but might be important in a future coronavirus outbreak or for the MERS coronavirus outbreak, which is continuing largely on the Arabian Peninsula. But Steve, there is a tremendous amount of research going on globally well beyond Operation Warp Speed. However, Operation Warp Speed is a model of how to accelerate and how to accelerate with an eye to delivery in the clinic, which I think is something that we have to think about because it's not just good enough to say I've solved a way to block some aspect of viral replication. You have to demonstrate it works and you have to be able to deliver it. And that's where I think the extra energy to understanding how to solve the problem all the way to clinical delivery is something we should all look at and hopefully will be lessons learned from this event as we go forward in developing novel therapeutics. I'd add that there are several post-directed therapies still under clinical investigation, some of them within Operation Warp Speed. And we know, for example, as you said earlier, Steve, that dexamethasone has been successful, an anti-inflammatory drug. And there are several other trials that are underway that whose results hopefully we'll hear relatively soon. Of course, in this area, 
dexamethasone sets a very high bar because it's cheap and widely available. And most of the other things that we're talking about are antibodies or expensive small molecules. So they'll have to do better than dexamethasone in order to be widely adopted. And with dexamethasone, we've used it for decades. So we have a sense of its side effect profile, which is real, but is understood. And I think with any new molecule, the unknowns about the side effect profile always require caution as they're developed because we don't know. And therefore we have to systematically study and learn. But I think Eric, that when you pointed out the development path for small molecules, there are certain efficiencies of design that's different than let's say vaccines because one has somebody with the active infection. So one can immediately target the active infection. And what is implicit in what you just shared is that one has to think a bit about which part of the pathogenesis is the new therapy directed at? Is it antiviral against the virus? Is it against aberrant host response? And that may have differential implications for where you deploy it, the severity of illness that you deploy it, the nature of the outcomes that you assess, and what preclinical models can be most useful. Because one can do preclinical models to stop viral replication. It's harder to have preclinical models that truly take into consideration complex aberrant host response. And so how one tees up the preclinical understanding has different implications depending on the nature of the target. And that also has implications on how one studies it in the clinic. But there are fundamental efficiencies to having therapies that target somebody with active infection versus trying to prevent something in the majority of people who won't get it. That's a great point, Lindsay. I think absolutely preclinical models help when you're targeting specifically viral replication as opposed to host defenses. I will say that for this disease, the in vitro models are very good. The animal models are a lot more limited that we've seen thus far. So we can't replicate disease which makes a difference for both vaccine development and for therapeutics. A second article published today looks at another issue, testing for COVID-19, and looks at a new test. There are already a number of tests out there. What's different about this one? This one uses a different technology. Now, it's focused on detecting the virus, much like the PCR tests are or the antigen tests that are out there, but it just uses a different way of detecting the viral RNA. So it takes advantage of something that's gotten a lot of press, the bacterial CRISPR system. And we know about the CRISPR system largely because of its role as a tool in gene editing. But in this case, the authors use this tool very differently. Uh, this is a technique they described a couple of years ago, which goes by the name of specific high sensitivity enzymatic reporter unlocking, uh, but easier to say by its acronym, Sherlock. It relies on the ability of the CRISPR repeats with an appropriate guide RNA and an associated enzyme called CAS to identify specific DNA sequences. So in the Sherlock method, when the appropriate sequence is recognized, it activates a nonspecific nuclease, which can cleave reporter molecules that can be then detected very sensitively. So this is something that occurs at the end of an amplification the amplification is very similar to PCR, but the detection step is far easier. So in this article, the authors describe an integrated system where they can use Sherlock in one pot. 
within that pot, they can do the RNA extraction to get the viral RNA out. They can amplify it into cDNA for the right target sequences and then detect them either with paper strips or with a fluorescence detector. And it worked pretty well in contrived samples and samples that were made up that were not actual clinical samples with a sensitivity and specificity that seemed to approach that of the traditional RT-PCR tests that we're using right now. Although there's no comparison, it probably would make it more sensitive than antigen testing, which is quite a bit lower as compared to RT-PCR. But the advantage of this test is it's really fast. It takes about an hour and it doesn't require much specialized equipment. So it's a relatively easy test to do. So you can imagine it as getting close to a point of care test. But this hasn't been implemented in clinical settings. It's all in the laboratory right now. So we'll have to see how well it works under real life conditions. I mean, Eric, I think that novel technology and new detection methods are welcome and desperately needed because I think our testing capacity is not where it needs to be. However, preclinical testing does not predict how it will perform in the clinic because it is so much more complicated in real life with organ insufficiency, other potential inhibitors, the way in which samples are obtained, the way the systems are applied. So until we have clinic data, understanding true sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value is unknown, but needs to be done. What this approach affords us is thinking about different detection systems that depend on different reagents, that depend on different supply chains. And I think something that we've learned in this event is that supply chain shortages, which led to a lot of our testing shortages back in February, March, April, be it the design of the primers, be it the reagents to do the PCR and limited supply, has dramatically impacted our ability to respond. And so having different testing platforms that depend on different reagents affords us the ability to not be dependent on any given supply chain, which we have had problems with you know, this year. So assuming that this new method does work in the clinic, how beyond the supply chain issues that you're talking about, how does it fit into the testing universe that we're looking at? Well, I'd like to generalize that a little bit more, Steve, and talk about what do we need out of a test? And we'll see how well this particular strategy for testing fits in. But what we need are a lot of what Lindsay said. We'd love to have a test that had rapid turnaround. So you could tell someone right there at the point of care whether or not they were infected and maybe more importantly, whether or not they were infectious so that they could spread disease. So in settings like a workplace and even in households and congregate settings, we'd love to know who has the capacity to transmit infection. And we'd like to know that right away so that they don't have the opportunity to spread disease. And the other thing, of course, that we'd like is exactly what Lindsay said, is something with an independent supply chain so that we weren't pressing the critical areas where we still have shortages right now. And the reason that we can't do all of the RT-PCR we want is we just don't have a lot of the reagents that are necessary. So to the extent that a test uses independent reagents, that's a good thing. Of course, the other thing that's important, and we have no idea for this test or for most tests, is price. Because the more testing we do, the better off we could be in preventing transmission of disease. And that requires cheap testing. And so we'll have to see what the price of this or any other test is but we really want to get something that's 
far cheaper than the RT-PCR that's sort of gold standard right now. So Steve, I mean, what you're getting at is we need to first understand how well a test performs, assuming it performs extremely well. Then it's scalability and it's the complexity of use. Is it a home test, a point of care test, or a test that is higher complexity that needs a central lab? The more we can have high quality testing being run as needed, not as rationed, the greater the chance we have of identifying cases, as Eric noted, early in the infectious period, which is what's needed to block transmission. And what is tricky about this virus is we have sadly learned that it is all too often infectious days before you become ill. Therefore, if we are not testing in that period of infectiousness, we're not blocking transmission, which means we have to think about testing not as a response to clinical symptoms, which is how most of our algorithms are based for practicality reasons, but in a way that actually captures people during the early part of the infectious period so they don't transmit. And that's where high quality testing that gives a highly reliable, accurate result that is deployable to scale without high complexity central lab needs are probably what we're going to need to be able to go to colleges or to other venues that we've been witnessing lately where substantial amounts of transmission are going on in individuals who don't look terribly sick, at least not from the news reports or from the reports that we hear from colleagues. Given those fundamental needs, why are we still looking at limited testing availability and long turnaround times this late in the epidemic? I think there really continue to be supply chain problems. The question is, why are there those problems? I I think a couple of reasons. One is that manufacturing is global, and although the government would like to relieve some of those bottlenecks, they don't have access to all of the manufacturing capacity that they might. But I think there is something a little more fundamental, which is prioritization. I think that early on during the epidemic, increasing the amount of testing was not the highest priority of the U.S. government, and therefore it slid. I think the hope was that the outbreak would end early and that investments and that kind of thing weren't going to pay off. Ironically, there were investments elsewhere that were long-term, and I think there are political considerations that help drive that. It's much easier to show a ventilator that you've built and say, look, we built thousands of ventilators, even if by the time they're made, they're not really so useful. And harder to say, we made more glass vials or more pipette tips that are necessary for testing, which doesn't have the cachet. So I think there were both political considerations and a very complicated ecosystem that testing occurs in that have made that a more difficult problem. I do have to say, though, this is a problem that's been solved in lots of other places, but we continue to have problems here in the U.S. I think it's a catastrophic shame. And I think it's a shame still today. I don't think we have testing to scale that we need across the country to mitigate the transmission dynamics. And we have the tools to solve the problem. And as Eric says, how do we prioritize and make the proper investment And I think we need to think about testing, not how should I use testing because I have a limited supply, but how would I use testing to actually break the back of transmission? What do we want 
from testing to break transmission rather than how do I deploy it to those at highest risk or danger? And until we're able to apply testing to how we think we need it, not based upon what's available, I don't see how we stop transmission. And as I said before, Steve, what is so different about SARS-CoV-2 than SARS-CoV-1 is in my view, the high degree of infectiousness prior to symptoms in a significant proportion of the population. And until we have a strategy to deal with that, I don't see how we stop the transmission. And as long as we don't stop the transmission and get the R naught less than one, as we were discussing at the beginning of the epidemic, transmission will go on as we are sadly witnessing. I mean, let's fantasize here for a second. Let's say that you had a five minute, 25 cent test that was not necessarily perfect, but pretty good for testing. And every time anyone walked into a workplace, a school, every day, you tested into a political rally, into any sorts of gathering, you'd have the ability to control this virus in no time, honestly. It wouldn't be hard at all. And independent of all the other tools, independent of vaccines, independent of the therapeutics that we were talking about early. So the fact that we haven't really identified that even as a goal is a tremendous failing. And we've witnessed in other communities using these types of tools eradicating transmission, such as in Wuhan, where it was out of control in a large number of people for a significant amount of time, as well as other countries. With these types of tools, transmission gets blocked, eradicated, and then new introductions occur. If these tools are applied to any given community, we can stop transmission. But if we don't apply it to all communities, you'll continue to have reintroduction from external arenas where transmission is going on. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.